Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include DuckDuckGo, committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. Support for WFIU News comes from... The IU Alumni Association now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg. Co-hosting with me today is Benta Boutier. She is a reporter with the WFIU, WTIU newsroom, and welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. We are going to be talking about COVID-19 numbers, new variants, and any concerns that people may have out there with three guests when we get connected with them. We're having a little trouble connecting with our guests, but we will have Graham McKean, who's been with us many times before. Graham is Director of Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University. Shandy Durth is the Director of the Center for Public Health Practice at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IU in Indianapolis. And Dr. Thomas Dzinski is professor and director of epidemiology education at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to our producer at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send us your questions there. So, Graham, are you with us? I'm here, Bob. It's great to hear your voice again. It's great to, great to have all three of you back with us. And we've been fortunate to have you during the pandemic to talk about all things COVID, and we even had Sean Monkeypox not too long ago. But I want to I want to go back to COVID, and Graham, I want to start with you first. And then uh, go to the other two and just get your, you know, your view at this point. We've done several shows before, but what is the uh, state of the pandemic at this point? Of course, you had to ask me that. Of course, you had to start with me. But um, yeah, <laughs> we're getting towards three years in our, our COVID radio. I know, I know. Um, and I feel like it gets harder to convey kind of where we are every time. Uh, I can say it ain't over, uh, regardless of what the president has said. Uh, luckily, we're kind of in this little bit of a lull now, if we can call it that comparatively. We still have 40,000 reported cases a day. We know that's grossly underreported because at home testing, we still have 30,000 hospitalizations and we're still at nearly 400 deaths per day. Um, but we should enjoy this moment uh, that we have and be gearing up for the winter uh, for the next wave, which may be starting to be brewing now in the Northeast United States. Uh, I think we've kind of bottomed out in Indiana. Uh, we might be seeing a slight uptick this week in cases, uh, but we've had the lowest rates of COVID in our university system in nearly 200 days. So we're going to take that for now and we're going to enjoy it uh, while it lasts. Uh, but so far in 2022, uh, nearly a quarter of a million people have died of COVID-19. Is that sustainable? Is that acceptable? Of course not. Um, and I think it's getting really hard now to track and conduct surveillance with less data being reported, less testing and less sequencing. Uh, sequencing is really ramping down when it really should be expanded. And, um, you know, the state and, both, and the CDC both have just moved to weekly reporting of cases and deaths. So it's getting harder to see that, but we can say winter is coming. Um, and also, I think what is really different now than what we have seen previously is what we have, what we're calling a variant soup. 
Uh, we're seeing some evolution we haven't seen yet. It's increasing in speed and frequency. Kind of where we used to have one dominant B variant and push out the next one. And right now we have like three or four really nasty immune evasive ones kind of co-circulating. And I think we're going to maybe see layered winter waves of these kind of immune resistant strains. Um, you know, we stopped naming them Greek letters uh, and Omicron isn't even a year old yet. And we now have over 300 subvariants of Omicron that are highly divergent uh, and, and none are really currently dominant globally. Um, and I think we'll talk about the BQs and something yes. called XEB, mm -hmm. uh, which seems to be the most immune evasive yet and may leave some of our treatment drugs obsolete. So, you know, uh, I think it's a time to enjoy while we can re relax momentarily, but I think uh, we need to start messaging and I think we need to start planning for what will be uh, a likely pretty disruptive winter and, and maybe not just with COVID. We're already seeing with RSV and we're already seeing high flu activity as well. Shandy, I want to get your take on this. Um, Graham doesn't give us a very pretty picture. I want to know if you have uh, any disagreement with what he said or if he, you think he's pretty much right on. No, I agree with Graham. Uh, we've got a lot of variants out there. This definitely is not over, but I think we do have a lot of tools now that we can use. So vaccination is still effective. It's still helpful. So even with some of the variants maybe evading some of the immunity from the vaccines or actual infection, um, vaccines are still helpful. So I would still say go ahead and get vaccinated, get boosted, get the children vaccinated. So it's great now that we've got that uh, extra booster available for the the younger children and so the more we allow this to circulate the more variants we're going to get so it's not just good for you and your family but it's just good in general for the rest of the public to try and squash this as much as we can going into winter i would prepare by thinking about some of the things we've done the last two winters to help bring numbers down when they got high maybe avoid some of those large gatherings maybe consider mask use when you do need to be in person in a large gathering so we've got a lot of lessons learned those aren't going to go away i don't see masks completely disappearing from the u.s in the next few years so i think we just need to go back to that general knowledge that we all know it might not be the most fun thing to do but i think it's something we need to do especially if you're vulnerable or if you've got some vulnerable people in your family you need to consider some of those things again once the cases start to surge dr thomas Dzinski is with us as well uh, i want to ask you you know the same question the the state of the pandemic but also you know uh, shandy dearth talked about sort of protecting ourselves again going back to some of the things that we've done how likely do you think it is that people are going to accept that point of view and do the right thing Are you there, Dr. Dr. Dzinski? Maybe on mute. Graham, I'm going to ask you to take that. About the... I don't know if I heard the question. You're cutting okay. out there. Oh, I yeah. was? Oh. Was... I can hear you again. Now Tom can hear you again if you want to ask. Okay, again. yeah, yeah, great. Tom, so the question was, you know, to give us your um, your view on sort of the state of where we are with the pandemic, but also – um, Shandy Dearth just talked about how we're going to have to go back to a lot of the same precautions that we've had in the past. And I was asking, how likely do you think it is that people are going to do that in the numbers that are necessary to, to keep this thing tamped down? We seem to be having some technical difficulties today. So, Graham, did I cut out on you or are you there? Uh, and in the population. So oh. uh, we fully expect that same sort of thing to be happening uh, in the coming weeks. Usually after Halloween is when we start to see an increase in cases. And that generally runs through the end of February, right? So as we, as the weather gets colder and we come indoors, we start interacting, uh, we are able to transmit this disease. It isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, it's going to become one of those endemic things, things that we live with uh, in the coming years, what are the what, what are the statistics now about the seriousness of of the disease? I, I think Graham said, did you say four hundred people are dying a day, something like that? Yeah, it's it's gone down a little slightly. I think it's closer to three sixty, but it has been up to four hundred. And as I said, you know, we've already lost a quarter million. 
this this calendar year uh, so far. Um, but overall, I think you know that severity has been lessened, and that's through adaptive immunity from a, a, a infection-induced immunity. It's from vaccination-induced immunity, um, and those you know staying up to date certainly helped lessen that severity. So I think we're seeing less severe outcomes. We're seeing less severe acute outcomes. Uh, but I still do not feel that it's acceptable or sustainable to have this level of of death and and hospitalization as well. Um, and you know, we can also say, unfortunately, that uh, over a million of our most vulnerable are no longer here, um, so they cannot be reinfected or or die from this because they already have. Um, and even with the severity, I think something that concerns me even more is this ability. Uh, to have these post-viral syndromes and long COVID. Uh, we've got millions of folks out of the workforce because of it. Uh, you're starting to see it uh, at the sports levels, at the, at the entertainment levels, uh, folks that are finally coming out saying that they're struggling with uh, long, long-term long symptoms as well. And that is really scary when you have this potential to be reinfected a couple times a year. Um, you know, at what point are, are others gonna start to have some of these these issues as well? And so I think, that's why there's just so much continued value in limiting the spread of the virus. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Ben. Okay. Graham, I think it was you talking about how many variants and subvariants there are of COVID-19 now. And what do those look like symptom-wise? I guess I'm wondering if someone feeling unwell this season will question whether they really have COVID or not if the virus is varying so much? I think that's a great question because it is so variable and it's so variable individually, right? Some of, some people are asymptomatic. Some people have like a near imperceptible cold or allergy-like symptoms. Other people, you know, have double bilateral pneumonia or and or die. So there's, there's that range. And I think that makes it challenging when we're trying to get people to take it seriously, especially if they've had personal experiences where that were mild or asymptomatic or, or not very um, severe. But I, I think we need more data, one, to know if these BQ1s or these XBBs are more severe. Uh, so we do need that. And of course, our adaptive immunity, again, is going to lessen those severe, those outcomes. Um, I don't think my sister would be upset in me saying, one, she doesn't live in Indiana, but um, she got the bivalent booster three weeks ago and uh, traveled to France and came back and had just a very, very minor cold, but decided to get tested, and she was COVID positive. Um, whereas her partner had not been able to get the bivalent booster yet and had a more severe outcome. So there's that variability as well. And so there is still so much value, again, in normalizing staying home when you're sick, getting tested when you have symptoms, uh, making sure you take time to recover before you go back to work or school. And that's for any you know, disease or virus or anything that's communicable. And so I think those things are going to become so important this winter because I think, again, it could be uh, rather disruptive. I want to ask uh, just this is kind of a personal question, I guess, because I had COVID in July. I finally got it. And all the literature I was reading said that I didn't really need to, after I'd been through my five days or 10 days or whatever, that I was going to test positive for a while longer, even though I wouldn't be contagious. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, I've had COVID and now I'm testing positive again. You know, this might be 10 days later or 12 days later. What are the what are the facts on that? I mean, if you if you have it, you test positive. Are you going to test positive again for a couple of months, even though you're not um, you're not going to be spreading the virus? I may not have an answer to that. Tom, you want to take that one, or Shandy? I'm yeah. happy. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead Tom. Shandy. I was just going to say. So we're still dealing with case investigations with the Marion County Public Health Department through our partnership we have at the Fairbanks School of Public Health. And yes, people can truly test positive even though they're no longer symptomatic or infectious for a few weeks after an infection. It's not super common, it can happen, but if someone is testing positive three months after they got sick the first time, I would say that's probably a reinfection. So typically, um, you have some immunity. It's not 100%. It's not guaranteed. But the majority of people have some immunity against COVID after being infected for up towards three months. Now, with that said, I just want to point out a lot of people have it stuck in their heads that they don't need to get vaccinated 
until three months after an infection. And that is not true. Once you've recovered, once you're feeling better, once you're out of the isolation period, we recommend you go ahead and get vaccinated so that way you don't risk getting reinfected again. Um, Because again, that 90 day thing is not set in stone. That was the general rule of thumb, but somehow that's kind of like stuck out there in the community that you're, you know, free and clear for three months. And that's just not accurate. It, it seems like a lot of the, the messaging is is becoming, you know, it was difficult in the beginning, then it seemed like it kind of took, and now it seems like it's becoming more difficult again because people do hear these things and they get in their minds one thing when that might not be the appropriate thing to do. Um, Tom, is the messaging becoming more of an issue as we get further into this? I, I think it is, right? So the messaging, um, as you indicated, uh, needs to change as we learn more information about this virus. Uh, and we're going to continue to learn more about this virus for the next five or 10 years even uh, as we study it more. So the messaging has to change and, and that makes it challenging for individuals uh, to realize that, you know, we said one thing in the beginning, uh, now once we've learned more, we have to say something else. Uh, and it confuses individuals. We understand that. Uh, I think there's also an issue of complacency here, right? That we're all fatigued by this. We're tired of dealing with COVID. We understand that as well. Uh, and people sometimes simply just don't want to hear or uh, listen to those messages either. So we have to come up with unique ways to get that information out. So uh, that complacency can also be dangerous in the sense of, Uh, I'm not going to look for more information. I'm also not going to adhere to some of these recommendations from public health, as Shandy mentioned, masking or getting your booster uh, appropriately. Uh, And then we live with the consequences of that where we see more cases of disease and then the possible emergence of another variant, uh, which then just starts this whole cycle over with. Yeah, I think... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I agree. I think we have this misperception, too, that a lot of this risk and safety is binary. And it's, you know, things are either safe or not safe, but it's this opposite of reality uh, as well. And I think it's especially true when we talk about risk with infectious disease, and it is becoming more nuanced, and it's harder to explain because risk changes with time and varies across different people. And individual-level risks need to be weighed with population-level risk, and we know that nothing is 100% or absolute but we know things can reduce risk, and we know that those multi-layer strategies are kind of stack slices of Swiss cheese are going to provide us the best overall safety for a population. And, and I think trying to convey that and trying to talk about those terms and risk is becoming incredibly challenging. I think a lot of us in public health and in science and medicine have failed pretty tremendously at that. I also think when you talk about the uh, isolation periods, too, that the CDC's shift to a five-day isolation period Uh, during the height of Omicron in January of this year, I think is still one of the biggest mistakes we've had, gives people this false sense of security that they're done as well. And I think maybe it's one of the reasons we've kind of just had these ongoing cycles of uh, infection too, you know, Uh, and there's a recent study that 94% of people are still infectious after that day five um, as well. And so I think that I think really kind of hurt when was the start well, not the start. It was the continuation of, of this kind of decline and appropriate messaging um, throughout the pandemic. Graham and Shandy, well, I guess this would maybe work for all three of you. But Graham, you mentioned at the beginning uh, frustration about data being kept. And I'm wondering how what information is being tracked about the virus and its spread is going to contribute to our long term understanding of it. I know working in journalism covering sort of issues that were affecting people for a long time. There's sometimes a complaint that experts come with that, oh, there wasn't data available for this then, so we have to draw on our knowledge from now. And I'm wondering if that could happen again today with COVID. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, Obviously, you know, there's still a lot to learn about this virus. Uh, And I I believe, or at least I know from speaking from our university standpoint, there's a lot of research ongoing uh, by a lot of different departments and individuals uh, around this virus, looking at it from various perspectives. So for example, our school is currently working on a long COVID study. 
in the sense that people that are experiencing symptoms or suffering from um, you know, ill effects of having the virus, what does that look like? How long does it last, right? So more and more data is being collected, more and more data is being analyzed, and then research to help us understand how people can best protect themselves. All right, that was Dr. Thomas Dzinski, and he's professor and director of, of epidemiology education at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI in Indianapolis. We're also joined by Shandy Durth, director of the Center for Public Health Practice at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health, and Graham McKean is with us. Uh, he's been with us uh, on and off for three years talking about COVID, Director of Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University. If you have questions about COVID, and we are we are trying to raise the alarm again about what, what's happening with COVID and the different variants, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. One of you uh, referred to RSV before, and I wanted to get an explanation of what that is. And any of you who want to jump in, that would be great. RSV is uh, a a virus, uh, illness, a respiratory illness, and it's very pretty similar to cold-like symptoms, and it is kind of cold-like for most of us and most um, young adults and adults, Uh, but it can impact children pretty significantly. Um, And we're seeing, just like how the flu kind of got out of whack in the terms of its seasonality and when it spreads, uh, same, same thing happened with RSV. And we're seeing some really high levels right now. Uh, It generally peaks in January, uh, but it's doubled over the last month. And there are children's hospitals across the US that are already full of all kinds of things like RSV and COVID and flu. And so that's where I think we have this concern, uh, this compounding concern about kind of the the trifecta of these three viruses. kind of accumulating this winter and being pretty severe. So this is a a separate virus from both the flu and COVID. Correct, correct. And and is it it prevalent in children? It it, it is, um, and uh, like I said, it's usually more of a seasonal, winter seasonal respiratory virus, um, but it's been out of sync uh, just like flu was for the last few years. And Bob, if I can just add to sure. that, um, a big concern we have is co-infection, especially among younger children of RSV and COVID. Over the last three weeks, we've had many parents report to us during our COVID case investigations that their children were also diagnosed with RSV. And some of the literature in the past has shown that we weren't seeing a lot of co-infection, but when we did, those cases were more severe, as you would imagine. I mean, common sense says if you've got two of those bad respiratory viruses at the same time that that could really um, harm someone. And so that could be a, another talking point about why it's so important for parents to get these younger children vaccinated and boosted when eligible against COVID, because you definitely don't want your poor kiddo to battle both of these at the same time. What kind of treatments are there for, for RSV? Is it different from a treatment that you might have for the flu or COVID? I mean, there are different medications. It's more supportive treatment for RSV. So lots of kids can have RSV and not have to go in the hospital. But as Graham noted, many hospitals, especially pediatric hospitals around the country right now are seeing a surge in cases. And even Riley Hospital here at IU in Indianapolis, um, they've been on the news recently talking about how many RSV cases they've been seeing. I want to ask uh, Tom about the the new variants, BQ1, and and I thought it was bq dot one dot one but there may be another one that graham's been mentioning what what do we know about these new variants well as graham indicated yeah these are uh sub variants of omicron right so omicron is a is a large label or an umbrella uh label for various sub variants right um like ba5 is the one we hear a lot about that's the one that's predominant right now at least in the u.s making up about 62% of the cases. Uh, but over time, we see other subvariants emerge. And these ve- subvariants emerge simply because um, the, the virus is looking for a way to survive. Uh, so it infects somebody. Uh, it's looking for a way to 
you know, get around the immune system or get around the vaccination and the immunity from the vaccination uh, to survive. Uh, so that's why, you know, it's really important that we keep the amount of disease transmission uh, as low as we possibly can to reduce the emergence of these variants. Because the concern here, at least from public health, uh, is that we get a subvariant or we get a variant uh, in the population uh, in which our vaccines no longer work. Fortunately, we're not at that point. Our vaccines still are very effective at keeping people out of the hospital. They're effective against uh, keeping people from dying. Uh, but you, we, we're already seeing the effect of these by, yes, you could still get infected even though you've been vaccinated. And so I was reading that the term saying you're fully vaccinated now is out of date. You shouldn't say that to people if they're asking if you've had your vaccinations. Does Is that something you guys have heard? Yeah, I think the term more, I think we were using fully vaccinated for that first primary series, but now we call it up to date. And so that would be based on your eligibility, um, you being having all of that primary series as well as any uh, recommended boosters. And so right now, um, we're even down to the five-year-old and up for the bivalent eligibility. It was 12, but recently uh, the FDA authorized that for five and above. And um, it, that those bivalents, that's based on BA5. So I, I fully expect some better protection on the prevention of infection and transmission, certainly more than the original vaccines as well. And BQ1 is a descendant of BA5 um, and BA, BQ1 and BQ1.1 now account for 11.5% of all cases in the US. So that might be kind of this first new wave that we see this winter. XBB, um, which based on some of the early indications might be the most immune evasive yet, it sounds like. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of data on it yet because it's not really taken off in, in a certain areas that much yet, but it, it's actually a recombinant of two different BA2 variants. And it's not really on the board here yet, but uh, obviously will be coming, I assume later this winter, and if we had to bet right now, I'd say these are the two to watch for, but we could easily get surprised again, just like we did last year when the news of Omicron hit on Thanksgiving and then completely upended, and upended the winter for all of us. So um, not to say we couldn't have another curveball thrown at us uh, here even before winter. Are we seeing any kind of pattern in when variants sort of take place? Can we expect to see a spike in what kinds of mutations take place as we move indoors and people are interacting more? I, I mean, there's so much divergence now that I think that's that's kind of already happening. But what we were seeing, and it was almost like clockwork, was like every six weeks over the last, I don't know, 10 months or so, maybe longer, I don't know COVID time anymore, um, but you would, you would kind of just like be able to predict like this will be a dominant and then six weeks later, this one will come in. But um, if you go and look at the variant proportions right now in the U.S., it's really spliced up. There really isn't any one dominant thing on the planet right now. And so we have a lot of these things that are co-circulating. And again, that's kind of this new thing we're seeing that we haven't before. And so that's where it, I think it's really hard to project um, going forward. But um, the viral evolution has been quite staggering. Okay. What do we know about what's in Indiana? What variants are most prevalent here? Uh, I think I can only look through the Midwest necessarily. Tom, do you have any specifics in Indiana? No, that's exactly right. We can only kind of see regions, and BA5 is still the dominant variant across the U.S. We have a question that's come in from Connie, who sent us a, a question. Um, she's not going to go on the air, but have there been studies to test the transmissibility of COVID between people who have gotten the vaccine and people who haven't? So is it more transmissible from people who have not been vaccinated, I guess would be the question. Yeah, so I think there are studies out there that do recognize that there really isn't that much of a difference in transmissibility. Uh, we suspect that people that are vaccinated have, tend to have a lower viral load, meaning that they don't have as much virus, even though they may still be infected. Uh, they don't have a, as much virus as somebody that's not vaccinated, right? So um, as um, people with higher viral loads, they might be able to infect more, uh, but it doesn't really affect the transmissibility of 
um, individuals, right? So the virus doesn't necessarily change. It just means you either have more virus, which means you could potentially infect more people, uh, or you have less virus uh, and you can't infect as many. If I can just add to that, though, I do think those people who are vaccinated tend to have fewer symptoms, and that goes kind of hand in hand with the viral load. So if you're coughing less, sneezing less, you're less likely to transmit it just because you're not spewing out <laughs> that viral load, for lack of a better term, as, as often as someone who was completely unvaccinated. And then likely to have a shorter period of infectiousness right. as well. And, you know, that really brings up uh, the whole idea of masking again. And I guess I'd like to go back to the go back to the beginning about the effectiveness of masks and what kind of masks should people be wearing and who should be wearing them and who do they protect and just all the all the basics about masking. They're not required anymore. I, even, I went to a doctor's office this week and the uh, appointment notice said that I would need to be masked. I got there and it said masks are optional when I got to the door. Um, let's just talk about masking. What makes masking effective and who is it protecting? And uh, Shandy, do you want to start with that? Sure. So we really recommend masks for people who are at higher risk for anyone who's recently been diagnosed just so that they're, again, not spreading it as often. Um, and N95 we know does better than uh, a cloth mask. You know, over time we've learned the cloth masks were not that effective. We needed to upgrade to more of a hospital grade mask and N95 is best. Um, and I can say as, again, as we've been working with the K through 12 schools in Marion County, as we deal with increases in cases sometimes at the schools and when school returned this fall, we would talk with the schools and we would not mandate that they go back to mask use but I can tell you that when they were seeing an increase in cases, we would remind them, what did you guys do last year that worked so well to help bring the numbers down? And it was often they would have the, the kids use masks. And so the schools haven't gone back to mask use for the semester or anything like that. But even implementing it for five days, seven days, I can tell you it has really helped those schools stay open. They're able to squish that surge a little bit. And so that way they can keep operating because, again, you know, the schools, we see the value in keeping the schools open. The kids need the schools for the education, for safety, for food, for a number of reasons. But also schools need staff to operate. And sometimes putting that mask use in place will help protect the staff and so that you have enough staff to operate. At the beginning of the school year, we had a school that ended up going virtual for a day because they did not have enough staff to operate. Too many staff got sick too soon. Um, and back in the spring, the Indiana legislators passed a rule that said schools can only be virtual for three days out of the school year now going forward. And so that's even more of an incentive for the schools to really squash COVID as soon as they start to see those cases rise. So I'm still a big proponent of mask use when I'm going into, you know, crowded places and airports, things like that, where I don't know, you know, the vaccination status of everyone else or what everyone else has. I know that masks, mask will help protect me as well from not just COVID, but all the other respiratory things going around. And the last thing I want to deal with when I'm on vacation is some sort of respiratory issue. Um, so there's still a great value in using masks. And I would think if we start to hit a surge here in the winter, you're a healthcare provider, you're going to see that signage come back asking people to still wear a mask when you come into the healthcare provider's offices. Because obviously, you're going to have sick people at a healthcare provider's office. And so you want to protect uh, visitors and patients as much as possible. What are you seeing as far as receptiveness of people to wearing masks or taking other types of public health precautions again? I'm looking at this as a poll from April of this year, and it says over, so it's a, roughly a thousand U.S. adults, um, only 44% of them supported their state or city requiring masks to be worn in all public places. That's I guess the first time this poll taken by Axios has dipped below 50. So I would say it's not surprising. Um, it's disappointing, but definitely not surprising. I would say people who are more health conscious and more community minded are the people who tend to you know, use the mask more and people who are more immunocompromised themselves. You know, they see the need to take the extra layer of protection to help themselves. So in addition to being vaccinated, masking is a second step you can take. 
So, you know, we're back at work, we're back out in the public more often. And so we've got to really think about those people who are more vulnerable and we've got to make it easier for them to get back to regular life. And so that's another reason I'm still a big proponent of mask use. I'm glad to see, I don't see the mask shaming that we were seeing probably back in 2020 at one point. I feel like a lot of that has gone away. I think people realize some people need to wear a mask to protect themselves and that's okay. We have a question. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so to say, I still get some looks here and there, uh, certainly with masking, but again, very simple, very easy prevention measure. Of course, the more the better. And where I think we've, again, kind of failed in this messaging, I, I feel like I was seeing a lot more masks on campus last week for whatever reason, which is great. Not a single one was a high filtration mask. They're all cloth or loose surgical masks. And if you're going to wear a mask, you might as well wear one that's going to work better. And so really trying to get that word out that if you are wearing a mask, wear at minimum uh, a KF94, a KN95, an N95, or an FFP2, something that's actually uh, high filtration work better against you know an airborne aerosolized virus as well. And then I think the other thing we need to really address, and I feel like we're finally maybe getting there a little bit on the national level, there was recently a White House summit about indoor air quality, is better ventilation, better indoor air circulation um and i think that is not political i think everybody can support clean air i think it's kind of the next frontier in public health just like you know clean water was many decades ago and there's a lot of utility um not just for covid but for co2 levels or molds or other viruses or allergens uh to have cleaner air and so i think that's really the next frontier and i think that's an area that everybody could get behind um but we, I mean, here we are three years later, and I feel like we have not sufficiently addressed indoor air quality at all. Um, so I think there's still that room for improvement. And that would make, you know, the necessity for masking uh, less if we had better indoor air quality, better circulation. I want to just more clarification on masking. And again, this is the message that I remember early on the message was that masks don't help you protect you as much as they're protecting the people that you're close to. Is that, you know, what kind of protection, if if you're wearing a mask, what kind of protection is that giving you versus um, helping to, you know, helping the community around you? Yeah, so masks work both ways, um, in especially for respiratory, right? So if I'm wearing a mask, uh, the virus or respiratory droplets uh, have a barrier uh, from getting out, right? That they, they don't get out into the air itself uh, from me. Uh, and then if another person is not wearing a mask, there is a barrier. There's still that physical barrier between uh, that other person's respiratory droplets and me. So they do work both ways. Uh, as Graham indicated, though, it depends on the type of mask, right? Uh, we know that some masking is better than none, but then there's the grades of different types of masks that uh, actually do a much better job. If you're going to wear a mask, wear the one that provides the most protection. We have a question from Carol who asks, is, is there more than one type of booster being offered? And do people have a choice of which one they would prefer? She also says this is not uh, Johnson and Johnson versus Moderna versus Pfizer question. I I think she must mean about you know the news from earlier this week about um, is it Novavax as a different kind of booster? Yeah, Novavax was added. It was approved as a mix and match booster when it was first approved. Um, uh, I believe it was not as a booster, and so that that is a. Uh, subunit protein vax. So it's a little bit different um, technology in the way that uh, the vaccination works, and it has been shown to show some uh, cross protection against some of these omicrons uh, that we could call them. Uh, so that is available now, and then also there is both Pfizer and Moderna. Both have a bivalent, both based on BA five, uh, that are also available as well. So the the story I read said Novavax called Novavax a monovalent. So what's what's the difference? Well, it's based on the original um, strain of the virus, I but see. it's okay. uh, different technology and has different target uh, as well. Um, so it's it's a little bit different in the way that it, the mechanism in which it works. Um, okay. 
a little cheaper to produce actually as well uh and again has shown some pretty good cross protection against the variants so why well, didn't oh sorry shandy oh sorry i was just gonna say that question too may have came about because of the younger kids so until the bivalent vaccine was approved for those kids down to five recently we still had that older booster in place for those kids because they had not yet been approved for the bivalent but now the bivalent has been approved for those kids so right now anyone getting um the moderna or pfizer booster will be getting that bivalent all of the healthcare providers have been told to stop using that old booster type sorry i just wanted to add that okay okay I was just wondering why the first vaccines approved like Pfizer and Moderna went the way they did rather than Novavax. Why um, did Novavax take longer to come out? I think it was some of their, I think they actually had some production issues at one point um, and also just different timing on when they applied uh, for their EUA as well. It's actually uses uh, moth cells and some tree bark in it uh, to deliver the uh, subunit um, vaccine. Uh, so a little different in the way it's uh, designed and produced as well. We have another question that's come in uh, through our producer. What concerns are there about the new variants spreading due to the mass increase in travel from both over the summer and now as we head into the very popular vacation and business traveling months and holiday traveling months, I would say. So yeah, the concerns are, yeah. are identical. They're uh, um, in the sense that this is still uh, COVID-19. This is still uh, highly infectious. It's still hospitalizing people and people are still dying from this. Uh, the variants, uh, our biggest concern is having a variant uh, in which the vaccine isn't as effective against. Uh, and as Shandy indicated previously, if we can keep community transmission low, meaning people not being infected, we also lower the risk of a new variant emerging in the population. But we have to think about that globally, right? In that uh, it's not just here in the US, this is a pandemic, right? So we have to think about people in other countries making sure that they keep their community transmission low as well. Uh, so that, you know, the variant doesn't hop on a plane and, and come across the ocean or across country uh, and infect another population. So what should happen if a variant that is resistant to the vaccines arises? That's a, it's a really interesting question, because if that does occur, uh, we'll have to go back to some of those standards that we had prior to the vaccine, right? Those ideas of making sure that we are implementing masking and social or physical distancing, uh, getting back to just essential services if we have to. So that's, nobody wants to go back to those those days. Um, so the best way to prevent that is get vaccinated, uh, stay home if you're sick, uh, talk to your healthcare providers if you do have signs and symptoms, um, and get treatment as needed. How likely is it that a variant like that could crop up? Like how often does a new strain of the flu come along that's not responsive to our old um, shot for that? So for influenza, we get a new vaccine every year. Um, and it's based on what's circulating uh, in other parts of the world, uh, here in the US anyway, that, you know, so then every year there's a variant and we try and get a vaccine that matches that variant. And the same could probably occur uh, with COVID vaccines. The nice thing about the mRNA technology, like Pfizer and Moderna's technology, is that a new variant uh, vaccine could produ be produced relatively quickly uh, and easily uh, to match that variant strain if needed. We have a, a follow-up to that previous question that says, you know, to follow up, are there, have you heard any plans about canceling flights again to reduce spread from, you know, from overseas to here or here to overseas? Is anybody getting that serious about it? No, and I really don't see that happening again. I think just um, kind of the economic pushback from businesses, I would be shocked if that happens, at gotcha. least here in the U.S. Okay. So I want to ask both um, you, Shandy, and, and Graham, I guess, in particular about 
about the campuses that you're on. I guess you're all on campuses, but are there any discussions about doing anything differently at IU in Bloomington or IU in Indianapolis? Well, really just promoting and pushing um, flu vaccination and the bivalent boosters. Um, I don't think anybody here has mentioned yet the fact that uptake for these bivalent boosters has been abysmal. It's in the single digits. It was at 4% the last time I checked. I think it's still at least in the single digits. And that does not bode well if we want to have a, a less disruptive winter. So trying to work on the messaging and that, trying to give people opportunities to do that, um, setting up clinics, of course. Um, and then uh, same thing with the flu clinics as well. Uh, in terms of other measures at this time, I, I don't think there's any on the books, but I think obviously we would adjust. But as I said at the beginning, we're seeing the lowest levels within our university system of COVID on a seven-day average uh, that we've seen over about 200 days. Um, so again, right now we're kind of enjoying this moment, but also trying to work on that messaging going forward. Um, and we've also done other supportive things uh, for public health as well. We just had a, our second monkeypox clinic at IUPUI. Uh, and are continuing to push out bivalence and flu shots as much as we can. Uh, and happy that we have this Wednesday and next Wednesday at IE Bloomington fully booked uh, for, for flu vaccinations. I have two follow-ups to that. One is monkeypox. We had a show on it not too long ago. I kind of left the show terrified. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, it doesn't seem like monkeypox has been in the news nearly as much. Is that because of a letdown by the news media, or is it because it kind of fizzled out? I, th I think it's more uh, what we could actually call a public health success story, uh, which is very nice for us to have in public health every once in a while. Um, as we talked about in that show, there's a lot of reasons why monkeypox should be able to control be, be controlled more easily, is less contagious, doesn't spread as easily as something like COVID that can spread in the air or a or pre-symptomatically. So it does really take a lot of that prolonged close contact. We're not seeing a lot of indirect transmission. And I think it's just a really good success story of appropriate messaging to the high-risk groups, getting the testing and the vaccinations to those groups. And a lot of those groups are very health conscious in their communities and i think there's been a lot of support of that and so i think this is I mean, it was a little rocky start with the vaccination in the beginning but the fact that they broke that out into multiple doses instead of a single dose helped stretch that supply and i yeah i think we when we talked about it last time we were probably at the peak of it nationally and it's gone down significantly since then we're still at only five confirmed cases in district eight which includes you know bloomington and monroe county but also bedford columbus you know all those uh, counties as well um and it's really slowed down the indianapolis area where we had the most cases as well so i think a lot of it has just been really good public health uh, actions and messaging and education and, and uh, getting those treatments vaccines and tests to those that need it tom do you agree with that you were on that show too that scared me so much no i 100 percent agree with graham in that sense that you know we're uh, we've done a really good job, and I think the community that was most affected by this has done a really good job at helping us uh, get good scientific information out there, uh, and it is working. Shandy, um, Graham mentioned the new booster and the low numbers of people that are getting it. I, you know, I, I've got mine, and I have to say I was eager to get it, couldn't wait to get it because it's free. It should add more protection. Why is it so difficult for people to get out and actually just get a very quick, not painful shot um, that doesn't cost them a thing and is going to help protect them from a virus? You know, that's a great question. And I, I realize there's a lot of pandemic fatigue. We'd heard that phrase a lot a few months ago. And it's true. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, they think they've gone this long. If they haven't died from COVID, they're going to get through it. <laughs> but again, we're see still seeing too many deaths each day here in the U.S. We definitely need to be boosted. If we don't get more people boosted, it's just going to translate into a tougher winter. Um, and we just need to start thinking about this the way we think about annual flu vaccines. You get your annual flu vaccine, we might need an annual COVID vaccine until they can roll COVID in with flu. You know, we put on our seatbelt every day when we get in the car. We don't say, oh, I'm so sick of wearing the seatbelt for 200 days out of the year. I'm not going to wear it again for the rest of the year. 
seatbelt keeps you alive, COVID booster is going to help keep you, uh, you know, healthy and alive as well. So I just encourage people to take the time. It's super easy. It's still free across the U.S. Go into your local pharmacy, health department, plenty of supply, very little weight. I was actually just scheduling my kids for their boosters this weekend. Um, definitely go ahead and get that and get your flu shot as well. You can get them both at the same time. I have ha- have heard some people say they feel like they're more tired when they get them at the same time. Fine. If you want to space it out for a few days a week, that's great. But we do recommend that you get those by um, Halloween so that you're protected in time for Thanksgiving and the holidays and the family gatherings. That's one very predictable time when we start to see more cases. When people come back from fall break, when they start to get together for holidays, that's when we're really going to see numbers go up. So go ahead and get protected now. We've only got three minutes to go in the show, and I think it's been a good, instructive show about what's happening with COVID. So I want to just give each one of you, you know, about 45 seconds or so just to, to sum up what people should be doing as we head into these colder months. So let's, let's just start with Graham. Sure. I just echo all of us here and say, yes, go get your flu shot. Um, It does seem to be matched well this year. It's H3N2 seems to be the predominant strain. That's what we saw in Australia. And they had a a stronger season, so we can expect one here. So go do that and do that now. Also, go get the bivalent boosters. As we just said, it might and it probably will be the last free one that we get from the government. So take advantage of that. And then lastly, just do all those. You know, I realize a lot of people are kind of in a, a you do you individual risk assessment mode and, and just, you know, flying without any precautions. But please be cognizant of others. Please mask when you're exposed. Please, you know, isolate when you are sick. Please get tested when you're sick. Please don't go to work or school when you are sick. Um, just all of those classic, you know, not sexy, non-pharmaceutical interventions are still needed. And we still need multiple strategies to, to combat this virus. Tom, I'm going to give you the final word. So about 30 seconds. Great. Yeah. So I agree with Graham, get those vaccines. Also do a personal risk assessment, right? How much of a risk am I from being hospitalized or dying either from the flu or from COVID um, and then take those precautions like getting vaccinated and masking and staying home when you're ill. All right, we're, we're out of time, Shandy. I'm sorry, but you, you summed it up very well uh, in your last comment. So thank you very much. I wanna thank our health experts, our public health experts, Graham McKean, Shandy Durth, and Tom Desinski for being here with us today. For my co-host, Benta Boutier, And for engineer Mike Pashkash and producer Nathan Moore, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com and from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future healthcare in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.